Program Manager, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the second event in the Royal Academy season on the future of housing. Uh, on Monday night, we began the season with a, an event that explored the costs of the housing crisis, and some of you will remember it quite well because you were here, uh, but in a wide-ranging discussion, we heard uh, about very many issues, uh, in particular the decline of affordability. According to Campbell Robb, Chief Executive of Shelter, the most bastardised uh, word in the English language, uh, about population growth and the interactions between localism and the state, uh, particularly from Tony Travers of the LSC. And we also heard from the architect Alison Brooks about housing quality and her work for <coughs> local councils. And finally, we heard from Polly Toynbee making an impassioned plea for politicians of all sides to adopt Harold Macmillan as their hero of house building. This evening, we look in many ways the other side of the coin, taking a slightly more positive note to explore what we've called the upsides of good housing. What are the benefits for individuals and society when housing works well? Chairing this evening's discussion is Daisy Froud. Daisy works as a free-range strategist advising on participatory design and community engagement. She frequently works directly for and uh, with local communities, local authorities, and much of her work focuses on housing. She's worked in that field for 16 years, 11 of which were with AOC, the practice she co-founded with three architects in 2003. She resigned from that practice in 2014, the same year she was shortlisted for the Emerging Woman Architect of the Year Award. Daisy also finds time to teach history and theory of spatial politics at the Bartlett and also at Brighton University. Please join me in welcoming Daisy and our panel. Great, so thank you very much, Owen. Um, so just to reiterate the format, each speaker is going to be making a five-minute statement speaking from their position of expertise, their experience, about this idea of models of good housing and, and what might be the benefits, the upsides of good housing. Um, we've got five great speakers. I'm going to introduce them to you individually before they do their five minutes, because if I say it all in one go, it'll get incredibly boring and no one will remember it anyway. But we have Charles Seaford, Rachel Fisher, Dickon Robinson, Wayne Hemingway, and Richard Blakeway. So I'll tell you more about them in a bit. Speakers, I do have a clock, because we have got quite tight time tonight. We do need to end promptly at eight. So I'm going to ask all the speakers to keep to five minutes. And I will wave my notebook after four minutes, just so you have a sense of the timing. After all the speakers have made their statements... I'll begin with a couple of questions before bringing you all in. Um, first, quickly, I want to set a little bit of context to the evening's conversation to how we're going to tackle this topic of the upsides of good housing. This session, sounds like perhaps in, in contrast to the discussions on Monday, is an intentionally positive one. Um, that notwithstanding, I'm keen that we don't end up just sitting here in some kind of Pollyanna-ish bubble, discussing all kinds of inspiring examples that are of little relevance to the current challenges and context that we face here in the UK and here in London. I mean, after all, very few would doubt that there are upsides to good housing, but for many people right now, if, if we take a, a hierarchy of needs perspective on this, 
any kind of affordable housing with security of tenure would be good housing and the upside would be some kind of secure roof over one's head. And talking about anything more aspirational can feel a little bit um, irrelevant or even just unfair. But then, of course, not talking about it might mean that we all end up just settling for the worst possible option out of relief. So it's very important that we do think, well, what are these models? Which models, not just architectural models, but models of procurement, models of tenure, ownership models, might be a way of responding within and to the current context in the UK. So that's the challenge we're setting the speakers. So I've asked the speakers to focus on interesting models, research, and then the evidence and learning from these experiences. Because actually, if, quite ambitious for an hour and a half, but if we can find some good arguments where it might be worth <coughs> investing in some of these good models, and they're not just things to dream about or pie in the sky, then that would be fabulous. With that in mind related to this idea not just of abstract ideals, but of how things actually happen. I'm keen that we all bear in mind this quite famous statement by the architect John Turner, who was very famous for the empirical research that he did, particularly in Peru, but elsewhere in the world as well, to look at informal housing models and to think what we might learn from cities beyond a Western context. And he famously said that housing is not a noun... It's a verb. So it seems very helpful in terms of discussions about housing models here in the UK because it moves us away from this idea that housing is simply an object, a formal solution, that good housing is something that can be designed in the abstract and, and plonked into space and then rolled out. And it helps us understand housing as an evolving, ongoing activity. So we want to pay attention both to the ways in which people, us, inhabitants actively in, inhabit and occupy space, the way in which we make homes in different ways, individually and collectively, but also the way in which investors or authorities might actively provide and maintain the frameworks that allow us to make homes, to make housing possible. So that's the context. We're going to move to our speakers. Um, we're going to start with Charles. Then we're going to go to Rachel, then to Dickon, then to Wayne, and then to Richard. I'm going to say now, just so you don't think he's suddenly running off terrified of the difficult questions that are going to come his way, um, that Richard Blakeway does have to leave us at half past seven because he's got a prior family engagement that he needs to attend. So we'll try and get some questions to him first. Um, but first of all, we're going to start with Charles Seaford. So Charles is the head of well-being at the New Economics Foundation, which as a, a research and policy body, seeks to, his team seeks to understand, measure, and positively influence well-being, developing ways of integrating it into policy and promoting it as an alternative <coughs> measure of progress. Before joining NEF, Charles worked at the UK Government Sustainable Development Commission, but prior to that, he worked in management consultancy, specialising in strategic change, and co-founded the magazine Prospect. Um, early in his career, he also worked in the city and as a branding consultant, so he brings a real diversity of experience to the subject. Um, so our first five minutes on the upsides of good housing, over to you, Charles. <coughs> Thank you very much. Um, despite all those various things I've done, I've 
I've never been an architect or a planner, uh, and um, I'm not going to actually talk very much about architectural planning. Um, my interest is in policy. That's what we do at NEF. Um, but I want to base a, a few very simple um, observations on that, on some of the well-being evidence. Um, well-being evidence is a body of evidence about what, uh, what conditions tend to make people feel satisfied with their life or feel happy. And there's a whole load of um, surveys and statistical analysis which, which produces some clues to that. Um, we've been asked to focus on the upside. Uh, and I think if we're going to focus on the upside in this area, as far as the well-being evidence is concerned, um, we need to look at the built environment as a whole in which housing sits. Um, because uh, most of the evidence about how the house itself, and most of the well-being evidence about the house itself, um, focuses on um, the downsides and on, on, on what, you know, what, what aspects of housing tend to damage people's well-being. Uh, and that evidence, I'll just sort of give you a flavour of that, but that evidence is not that surprising. Um, we know that housing satisfaction is a, uh, an important driver of overall life satisfaction, somewhere between health and education in terms of importance. We know that lack of space, poor repair, damp, rot, all influence people's life satisfaction negatively. And perhaps uh, that affordability obviously does. And perhaps most importantly of all, uh, insecurity of tenure um, affects people's life satisfaction. And we know, uh, of course, we probably don't need this evidence to tell you, but we know that we have a problem. Uh, when we looked at the data uh, two or three years ago, we found that only 40% of people in the UK um, had housing that sort of satisfied the various tests. Were they satisfied with it? Uh, was it in good repair? Were they secure? Um, were they behind on their mortgage or rent payments? And if the answer was, you know, was positive to all those things, great. But only 40% of people satisfied that test. That was in the UK as a whole. It's probably worse in London. Um, so we know, we know that at the most basic level we're not getting things right. I mean, we knew that anyway, perhaps. Uh, and um, our interest at NEF has been in some of the policy things that can be done uh, to deal with that, um, using the planning system in a more proactive way uh, and compulsory purchase orders to, to get a, a, a proper flow of affordable land, um, reducing the risk for investors through structuring the financing in new ways, um, and, of course, raising standards in the existing stock. Um, looking at all kinds of levers, whether you're talking about local housing allowance, uh, conditionality, and licensing, and so on and so forth. But that's sort of by way of prologue. It's not what we were asked to talk about. We were asked to talk about the upside, not the downside. And as I say, it's easier to think about that if we look at the built environment as a whole. And there are, there are, there are basically, uh, in the research, there are some four key factors, if you like, that the built environment influences and which go on to influence people's well-being, their satisfaction with life and their happiness. Well, at least four, probably more, but four that I want to highlight. Um, there's what you might call positive health and vitality. Um, that's the first one. Um, community and social activity are the second one. The way people spend their time uh, is the third one. And what you might loosely call amenity is the fourth one. That's sort of a bit of a catch-all. Uh, so health... Um, for example, does the, does the environment, the built environment, encourage physical uh, activity? Uh, is it safe? Uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, community and social activity, uh, does it encourage social interaction? Do people feel safe? Uh, for example, green space uh, apparently encourages a sense of community amongst older people in particular. Um, how people spend their time is the way that the built environment works, uh, likely to uh, reduce commuting times or make them longer. Um, are there cultural and sporting facilities within easy reach? And, and amenity, 
Um, for example, it's well known that having more green space and trees reduces levels of stress. Uh, and obviously, noise pollution is uh, damaging people's well-being. Now, I mean, the, the, the point is it's not easy to get the balance of all those things right. It's not, but you can pay attention to it if you're a developer. And some developers do. I do a bit of work for um, a company called Igloo Regeneration. And they have 120 criteria which they use to assess developments at four stages from feasibility, well, from initial screening through to in-use assessment. And it's a pretty elaborate and rigorous system. Uh, and so you can actually, I mean, the, the, I think it's quite good news, actually. You can, if you want to, start to apply some of these criteria to, to, to your development. There is a case that it produces financial returns. I mean, they try and say to their investors, this is actually good for investment, and they can sometimes win the argument. But it's not easy to prove. And I think it takes commitment, commitment to quality, rather than simply a financial approach, uh, a, a financial assessment. The other problem with, with this is that many of the things I've been talking about as I say, are about the, the built environment as a whole. And most development sites, certainly in London, are probably too small for the developer to have the decisive influence over what's going on. I mean, they can have some influence, but not decisive influence. So, so actually, the upside is often down to the planning system more broadly. Uh, the market is not able to deliver it, not because the developers are nasty, but because there aren't the right incentives, and because they don't have the power to influence the wider environment in which the development sits. Um, so if, my simple point really, is if you're going to get the upside of housing in a city like London, you need to develop and empower, uh, above all, the town planning profession. Um, it's an old idea, I mean, there's nothing new about this, uh, but that seems to me, from looking at the evidence, the most critical, most critical step. Um, and it's a long way from where we are now, because planners that I've met always feel on the back foot, uh, they're responsive, they're fearful of appeals, they don't feel they can take the initiative uh, for all kinds of cultural and legal reasons. Uh, so, to sum up, um, we need active policy and active planning, both to deal with the downsides and to deal with the upsides, None, and, and, to, and, to, and to stimulate the upsides. None of this is impossible. It's, we're not talking for something like climate change, which is a huge and impossible problem to deal with. It's all within the boundaries of, of possibility. Uh, and I think it just depends upon someone and some people uh, deciding to do more about it, and I hope we're going to hear from Renat some of the things that the GLA are doing in this area. Great. Thank you very much. Perfectly to time. Um, so next we're going to hear from Rachel Fisher. So she's Head of Policy at the National Housing Federation, the umbrella body that represents independent non-profit housing associations in the UK, Prior to joining the NHF, Rachel worked as Head of Policy and Communications at Design Council CABE, and prior to that was also working in, in public affairs at CABE, so the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment, since significantly reduced. <laughs> um, and she actually developed CABE's position on achieving good design within the planning system in preparation for the current government's 2010 localism bill, so the most recent set of revisions or related to the most recent set of revisions to the planning system. Um, she's also worked as a parliamentary researcher and has worked in policy research and strategy for organisations including the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors and the Royal Society of Arts. And I was interested to see that um, not just operated at the policy level, 
um, that early in her career she worked with Freeform Arts Trust, a very established arts, community arts charity, to develop and secure funding from the Housing Corporation for an arts-led programme to design out crime on social housing estates in East London. So she's got that on-the-ground experience as well. So, over to you. Great, thanks. Probably the best introduction I've ever had. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I, I'm the head of policy at the National Housing Federation, and as Daisy said, we're, we're the trade body for housing associations. And housing associations are effectively social enterprises that currently house about 5 million people across the country. And the thing that I particularly like about representing housing associations is it's always good when you can actually represent things that you believe in. Um, because they're social enterprises, they reinvest their profits back into local communities and building more homes rather than just kind of returning profits to shareholders. So I think, I think that's a really a kind of positive thing. And uh, we at the Federation think, and recent polls would suggest that most of you in the room and also your attendance here would suggest that you would agree that we are in the middle of a housing crisis in England. And that's why the Federation is spearheading the Homes for Britain campaign and coalition, which is bringing together over 80 organizations from across the industry, public sector, private sector, charities, everyone, um, basically to call on the next government uh, to make a commitment to end the housing crisis within a generation. We think it took a generation to get into this mess, it's going to take a generation to get out and we need to start as, as soon as possible. But for us, ending the housing crisis isn't just about building more homes, it's about having the right kinds of homes in the right places and really importantly, at prices that people can afford, whether they're, whether they're renting or buying. So there are really two overall points that I, that I want to make tonight. Uh, firstly, uh, a good home is as much, if not more, about the neighborhood and the relationship that you have with a place as it is about the aesthetic or kind of asset value of, of the property. And secondly, people have different relationships with places at different times in their lives. That's normal. We need to think about creating a housing market, again, rental ownership, whatever is you know, in between, that works for everyone, not just a single model that seems kind of myopically focused on home ownership, which is basically what I would argue we have at the minute. So to take it back kind of, I think, to first principles and think about what is a good home, I want you all to think about where you feel at home. So what are the qualities of this place? And what I've found is that in general, if you ask this question across a range of people, they'll come up with remarkably similar answers. And it's probably not too different from what you're thinking or indeed from what I'm thinking. It's somewhere where I can close the door. It's somewhere where I feel in control, somewhere I feel comfortable, somewhere I can be myself alone or with my friends or with my family. And if you start thinking kind of outside the door, outside the property, and you think about what makes a good neighborhood, you kind of come up with similar things, right? You, it feels safe. It feels clean. It feels safe within reason. You know, I can find my way around. Maybe I know people. Sometimes I think that as architects, planners, people working in the built environment, and I've been working in the built environment for a while now, we can make this a little bit too complicated, and I think as people working in housing, it's easy to think that we're to think about kind of creating homes, creating places for somebody else, when fundamentally we pretty much kind of want similar things to make a good home or a good neighborhood. So if we start from the basics, I think we've got a much better chance of getting things right for everybody. So I think this is important when you start to think about planning new homes or even just ex uh, managing existing estates. 
And what do we know about good housing? Well, we know quite a lot about bad housing, about bad homes. We know that there are dire society-wide consequences of bad housing, including um, you know, costing the NHS millions of pounds every year and, and all of these things. And we also know that where you have high concentrations of poverty, it's really difficult to change people's life chances. This is what led, at least in policy terms, to the push for mixed communities, which is often achieved through mixing social or affordable housing in with market housing. But one of the other things that we also know is that this actually works best when the inequality between the people living in market housing and the people living in affordable housing isn't too great. This is a pretty big challenge for us in an increasingly unequal society. So cards on the table. I am a planner. I am neither an economist nor an architect. And that's probably why I tend to start from the place and the people rather than just kind of thinking about a building or a market when I'm thinking about homes. So when you're planning for a new development, what are are the current qualities or characteristics of a place? What do you want to bring out? What are the things that people who live there actually like about living there? And yet, what do people actually want to change? We rarely get the opportunity, as, as Charles pointed out, to have a blank canvas to build up a place from scratch. Though I'm sure if we talk about garden cities later at some point that that will come up. Um, But starting with existing places is really messy. Local people have opinions, often really forceful opinions, about who they think should be living there, what they think the new home should be, and and fair enough. I think the introduction of uh, neighborhood planning has the opportunity to truly be transformative in terms of how people engage with their neighborhoods. But we need to make sure that this works for people Um, that aren't living there yet. We need to make sure that it's working for newcomers as well as existing residents. And with an increasingly rental society, uh, the renty somethings the press are increasingly fond of talking about, does this inevitably mean that this increased transience will lead to less community cohesion? I don't necessarily think so. So I just want to leave you with one really brief um, case study, anecdote, if you will, example. Uh, Shenwood Court in Boreham Wood in Hertfordshire is a homeless hostel for families and individuals who are basically waiting to get put into more permanent accommodation by the council. And the scheme was designed with a communal garden, so good start. Um, But that was underused, and the managers really wanted to bring this back into use. So they ran workshops with the people that were living there to really kind of think about how do you want to use this place, how do you want to design it. And they came up with a community food-growing project, a place for the children to play which was actually more kind of overlooked by the flats so that you could actually watch your kids from the apartment I know it seems like rocket science um, and also an, an, an adult zone where people could kind of go be more adult and be sheltered from the children and this kind of engagement though it's not a one-off this is the kind of thing I used to do in East London this isn't a one-off this is something that requires a huge amount of commitment from the managers from the residents but it's absolutely worth it because this, is, this has been a massive success. People are using the space. People are interacting with each other. And they're building the skills of being good neighbors. And I think that's one of the things that you actually take as you move from place to place. So to sum up, um, we need to build more homes <laughs> if we're going to end the housing crisis. But they need to be in places where people want to live. And they need to be homes that people can afford. And above all, they need to be places where the people who live there can genuinely feel at home. Thanks. Thank you. Um, next, we're moving on to Dickon Robinson. Um, Dickon, among other things, is um, the chair of Living Architecture. So Living Architecture is an organisation that seeks to promote good architecture at the same time as offering a different way of, of having a self-catering holiday in that you can rent an amazing architect-designed home and they commission, they're constantly commissioning new homes. 
He also works as an independent advisor on architecture, housing, property, development, sustainability and urbanism to a number of organisations, government, voluntary and private sectors. Um, but he has a very housing-focused earlier career. Um, he was Assistant Director of Housing for the London Borough of Camden for um, over a decade. Prior to that, he was also Chair of the Soho Housing Association, so um, from 1970 until 1980, so experience of working at that level. Um, and then he also was Director of Development, perhaps most famously, Director of Development of the Peabody Trust, so the very established philanthropic provider of housing. Um, but he was at the helm during a period when a lot of experimental housing models um, were built in London by the Trust. In fact, I first met him um, at Bedzed, um, which was a very interesting eco um, development in, in South London. Um, he was made CBE for his services to housing in 2003. And um, yes, generally, generally got an awful lot of interesting experience. So I've asked him to draw on some of that experience for his five minutes <coughs> and to suggest some interesting models. Uh, thank you, Daisy. Um, I thought I would uh, talk a bit about housing and health. Good housing, good health. And uh, I'm going to draw on that uh, Peabody background because I've got here the Peabody Donation Fund's reports from 1873 to 1887. And uh, they're very short, actually. Um, on the first page, um, at the bottom of the first page, um, there, there's a, a paragraph, the like of which I've never seen in, in a contemporary housing association annual report. <coughs> in consequence of scarlet fever having been so extensively prevalent during a portion of the past year in the east of London. The number of deaths in the buildings at Shadwell was beyond that of any previous year. But notwithstanding this, the death rate in the whole of the buildings taken together was only 23 per thousand, but omitting Shadwell, the death rate in the other buildings was as low as 17.4 per thousand. Now the point about that quotation is that the Victorians were under no doubt about what they were doing. Um, uh, as a critical objective of the philanthropic housing movement. They were trying to improve people's health outcomes, and that's why they recorded it. Now, that was uh, uh, 1874. Um, we move on to the uh, uh, 1883, and there's a paragraph here where they talk about the birth rate. The birth rate for the year in the buildings reached 43. 45.04 per thousand, which is 10.74 per thousand above that of all London for the period. The death rate was 18.42 per thousand, which is 2.38 per thousand less than London. Um, so there we were. Um, the buildings were designed um, with, with health in mind. Um, cleanliness was everything. There was no plaster on the wall to stop the disease which was carried in the miasma from lodging in cracks and crevices. There were laundries, um, there were communal bathrooms, um, and a huge amount of effort was made to ensure that they had clean air. So, um, the point about the birth rate is actually, I think, really interesting. My observation from building new housing estates in, in London and housing younger families, is it made them frisky. 
Um, they, it was quite extraordinary how many families would um, add to um, their family during that first year after they moved in. It's a very interesting test of good housing, um, if it does that, it seems to me. Um, but what do we mean by, by good housing? Um, well, space is a critical component of, of uh, new housing, and GLA has been providing some serious leadership here. Um, you need enough for domestic activities, you need enough for entertaining, you need enough for working in these days. Um, vast numbers of people work from home, you need enough for your possessions, collecting possessions is part of a, a, a self-expression, you need enough for stories. This is all, you know, pretty obvious stuff. You need well-designed functional layouts. Amazing how many new homes don't have well-designed functional layouts. You need lots of daylight um, and sunlight. The Peabody Trust, those early architecture um, Derbyshire, really understood the connection between daylight, sunlight and health. Um, and I think you need long views, which begins to get you into the issue about your psychological state. Um, I would think that evidence of craftsmanship um, that somebody cared when they made your home is important, um, and use of quality tactile materials. And, of course, you need a healthy internal environment, good air quality, um, cool in summer, warm in winter, all, all obvious stuff. Um, and we shouldn't afford things like security and affordability. But the thing I really wanted to talk about, I think, is um, delight. Um, architects are all familiar with the old uh, three-part uh, firmness, commodity, and delight. And the great thing about firmness and commodity is, by and large, you can measure them. And we live in a society that's absolutely obsessed by process and by measurement, and which deeply distrusts anything which requires people to make a value judgment. We are not good at delegating. We don't trust people. We set up committees rather than delegate it to individuals. And so I think the really interesting thing about good quality housing is, is delight, the bit you can't measure, the bit that you can only feel. And that's one of the things which uh, Living Architecture I'm involved in is really interested uh, in giving people the opportunity to experience. Um, the last thing I really want to say is, is that... Um, um, I think we need to put healthy outcomes back at the heart of our housing plans. Um, and it's interesting that while the investment in the National Health Trust has risen for the last 30 years, that for housing has absolutely collapsed. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, actually, the health service can't cope it can't cope partly because too many people don't have good enough housing conditions. So my proposition is that we need to divert funding away from the National Health Service from clinical preoccupations and invest that money in improving the quality and the quantity of housing for the people who need it. Brilliant. Thank you. Gives us all something to mull on. Um, we'll move on to Wayne Hemingway now. So Wayne is an MBE and the founder of Hemingway Design. And he's always been very interesting to architects and those of us working in architecture because so he had a very successful career as a designer, particularly a fashion designer, although interestingly studied geography and town planning. Um, and then after graduating, set up the fashion label Red or Dead, which many of you will have heard of. But he became quite notorious in um, the early 2000s 
for having very publicly critiqued the design of housing estates, of, of private developer-produced housing estates, <laughs> stepping up to the plate and basically designing one. So working with a major house builder um, to produce um, a new housing development, which, well, unlike many housing developments, actually had some post-occupancy work done, up, done on it, which showed that many of the residents were very, very happy to be living there, because so often we don't get the opportunity to do that. But it was a very interesting model because it, well, he will probably go on to talk a little about this, a very interesting model in terms of what it promoted. Um, Hemingway Design is now a multidisciplinary design agency, which is led by two generations of the Hemingway family and a wider team of designers, and as well as still working on a series of master planning and affordable housing projects, Hemingway Design also produce public events such as the Vintage Festival and work on product design and on branding projects. So um, on the more academic side of things... Wayne has come back to those roots in that he's a professor in the Built Environment Department of Northumbria University and also sits on the trustee board of the Design Council and the Design Council K Committee. So, okay. over yeah. to you. Thanks for inviting us. Um, well, the title of this is The Upside of, of Good Housing. And um, I think both myself and my wife, so everything that you said um, that I've done is really kind of done because there's two of us who got together when we were kids, basically, and did all this together. But uh, both of us are the products of, of good housing. There's, there's no doubt about that. And, I'll, and everything, everything that we achieved with the states and with the housing developments now is, is, is done, is based on our childhood and, and having really happy childhoods. And, and um, having that has been our, has been our basis and, and our education. Uh, and I'll just talk for a few seconds about uh, where I was a very happy place that I lived in, that was called Queen's Park Flats in Blackburn. <clears throat> and it was deck access. It, it, it came down a few years ago because of concrete cancer. But it was a, it was a 1960s, uh, an early 60s deck access, very large housing development in, in the town, very close to the town centre. But it was an amazing place to grow up. Um, it, I don't remember an awful lot about the inside of the flat, although I do remember light flooding in, and I, I do remember it being... It must have been, I didn't, obviously didn't know then, but it was pretty clearly Parker Morris standards because it, it felt big. Um, I, I do remember the views, uh, the views across the hills of Blackburn, and I could see my beloved Ewood Park, see Blackburn, where Blackburn Rovers play. So that was fantastic. We were looking out over this amazing landscape, of, which was a, a child's paradise. We, so we, you, could, you could come down the lift, the lifts stank a piss as they do, those metal lifts. Uh, that's one thing I remember, the negative thing I remember. But coming outside, it was... There was a, the landscape architect had, had created a, a stream, had, had reopened the stream. There was there was a football pitch, there was cricket, there was a, a mini little uh, pond to, 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 to put your boats on. There was amazing slides. It was a, it was complete adventure, and I all I remember is being outside. Uh, and, and then and then if we uh, and that's in Blackburn where it rains quite a lot. But I just I just can picture every little bit of it. And and then um, when that that was council housing. Uh, and then when my mum um, finally met a man um, when I was about seven, and, and, and he was running a factory, so they could afford to, so they could afford to buy the, the, the kind of the first house. And it was a, you know, you look back on it now, and I, I go to this place in Lamarck in Blackburn, and I look at it, and it's like, like it looks really awful. Really, it hasn't it hasn't worn that well? Uh, but it was a 1970s uh, spec build housing development. <clears throat> But I remember the excitement of buying that first house and, and I remember what it meant and, and I remember what it was like to have a garden and, and what it meant to my mum and, and, and all of those things and the passion that she felt for the first house that she ever owned. And then, and then I look at my, the, my, the missus, Geraldine's 
where she was brought up, in a, a two-up, two-down workers' cottage, which is still the family home, her, her family home, uh, in, in just outside Burnley in Paddyham. So five, you know, they got frisky in this place. Five daughters. Uh, five daughters in a two-up, two two-down. So the you Southerners that might not know what a two-up, two-down is, that's uh, a living room and a parlour uh, downstairs uh, uh, and two bedrooms upstairs. So uh, that meant that two of the kids sleeping in the parlour um, uh, and three sleeping in, in, in a room upstairs and mum and dad in, in the room, in room on their own. But... And it was in a terrace, and, and it was, it's, the house is worth £42,000 now. They bought it in the 1950s. God, they made a fortune. I think it only cost about 300 quid back then. They're rich. Um, but uh, it, out the back of it, you, you went out the back, and it was a, a small yard. And, and of each of the houses, everybody had built a different lean-to lean on it. So some had, some, had, some had built a big kitchen. Some had built just a place to sit out on. But, but people had that choice to, to make a choice in their lives. And out, and out from that... You, you, you went on to a wreck. It was called the wreck, the recreation. It wasn't a wreck in, in that sense of the word. It was short for the recreation area. And she, she, all she remembers, it was every birthday, every weekend, people would get out there. You could have a dog. You know, the, the, you know, one of the best things in life for me is having a dog. But there you, you know, it is. There, there, you, there you could have a dog. All the sisters could get out, got outside, out of, from under the feet of mum and dad. They could do things together. Other kids came out to play. At the time we did, I'm just about finished now. At the time we, yeah, got one minute left, but I won't even need that. At the time we were designing, at the time we were designing the stace, we just had our fourth kid, uh, and and being able to, to to bring our happy childhoods and understanding what that meant towards bringing up four kids. Uh, we were still young, imagine we were, we were only in our mid thirties and we had four kids. Bloody hell, we could tell we're northerners, and and and. Um, <laughs> Uh, and we, so we were able to build a housing development that was for us. Uh, and when you're in that position to build something that's for you and you knew it was for the life that you have led and the, the happy life that you have led and the happy life that you wanted your kids to, to, to lead, it was a no-brainer. It, no it was an absolute cinch. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And on to our final speaker. So Richard Blakeway is the Deputy Mayor for Housing, Land and Property at the GLA, the Greater London Authority. Um, he's a really interesting early career. So many people here have done so many things before they ended up um, working in housing. But he was an elections advisor to the government of Somaliland, an elections observer in the Ukraine. And he also um, helped launch a magazine, in his case, International Development Magazine. Um, came into politics through working in the House of Commons, um, including for the Conservative Party's policy review, and then joined Boris Johnson as a campaign advisor, um, particularly on housing, and subsequently became Boris Johnson's housing guru, as he's called in the housing press, in the architectural press, in 2008. Um, he also is a young ambassador for the Samaritans, a fellow of the Royal Society for Arts, a trustee of the Chartered Institute of Housing and chairs the board of Homes for London. Um, so over to you. Great. Thanks, Daisy. Um, I'll try and be really quick. Um, there's, a, um, there's a brilliant video for a film from 1972, which you can um, see on YouTube. Um, and I, I think it's in the Metropolitan Archive. And... It starts off in glorious technicolour and sweeping shots from Tower Bridge going down the River Thames. Uh, and it talks about the industry that we had um, uh, in the east of London and um, 
Um, and then slowly, halfway through the film, it moves to a shot of uh, uh, these people, very earnest people, bespectacled like myself, um, moving around Lego blocks, it looks like, and all this. And they're inside County Hall, the old uh, GLC planners. Um, and what they're doing, what they're looking at, are the designs of um, Thamesmead. Um, and it's an incredible uh, uh, story, I think, Thamesmead, um, if, if, if anyone knows this, uh, knows this estate, um, where um, these uh, plans to um, effectively build a new town uh, before it was even completed uh, were widely seen to be uh, failing. Now, none of this sounds very positive, and none of this suggests any upside to housing, except actually those guys at the GLC, I think, were incredibly bold, incredibly interesting, and had exactly the right ethos and vision that they wanted to create these wonderful new communities for, um, for Londoners. But it didn't work. And it didn't work largely because it lacked a kind of human element. Um, and any, if you visit Thamesmead and you walk around, you can just see from the walkway, some of which is compromised by the fact that uh, uh, the area is prone to flooding. Um, the, um, you, you know, it, it, it fails to conform to what's innate in us and fails to conform to um, human behavior. Um, today, um, and, and they've come up already, Peabody are now the owners of this estate. Um, actually, uh, sorry, just before I say that, the, 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 the test of friskiness is worth applying to Thamesmead because I think the number of people who live there is a quarter of what it could actually house. So I think that's a, a, a signal as to, to, to its success. Today, Peabody own it. And one of the key things, I, I won't uh, talk in huge um, detail except about Peabody's plans, except I think it's one of the most exciting regeneration projects in London and one of the last really big estates that, that, that requires regeneration. Um, one of the core things which they want to put there is, uh, and the word was mentioned before, is, is, is a word which George Peabody used when he set up that organisation, which is delight. He used this word delight, I think, in, t in terms of the work that Peabody should be doing in the late, late 19th century. And, and that's one of the objectives that they um, have there. And... Um, um, you know, and I think there will be a, 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 I think it will become symbolic of um, the work that we need to do to transform um, housing and communities um, in the capital. Um, there's obviously been a session earlier this week which um, sets out all the pressures that we have around housing. And if I just quite try and quickly cover off some of the things which I think um, um, need to be addressed, but, 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 but also the, the, the opportunity that it presents, because... Um, I think the pressure that we're under, this recognition that after pretty much 30 years that we failed to address our housing challenge, that we failed in particular to build enough homes to meet our population growth, um, is, um, is the prospect for innovation, for trying to do things a bit differently than, than has been previously the case. And that's one of the things we're seeking to do with our powers to try and, and money, is to try and retest what new things can happen. If I just go through a few quick thoughts which, uh, which could be different. Um, the first is to talk about those planners again. Um, Wayne once, I was on a panel with Wayne, and he said something incredibly powerful, which was planners should be heroes. 
much maligned group. They should actually be heroes. He's absolutely right. And um, I think the problem, and Charles touched on it, I think the problem with the planning system is it is too adversarial, it is too reactive. Plans come in, people, the planning committee doesn't necessarily not like the plans. This iterative process isn't very positive for building a place or a community. Um, so actually, I think there are mechanisms, I'm not you with this, but there's local development all these things like that, where you can really take some control and, and shape an area. And there's 20 places in London which we want to make into these new, exciting areas where, where you're thinking much more broadly about what's being built. The second is who builds. And, and our current housing industry does have, a, a bit contentious, but it does have too much kind of box bashing going on. And actually, we need to complement it with organisations which are more interested in the long term, more interested in regeneration. I want to actually stop those guys, um, and it doesn't, doesn't reflect on the whole of the development industry, not at all. There are some very good developers that we have, but I wouldn't necessarily stop those guys because we need the homes, and, but we need to double house building. And I think the double will come from different organisations. It won't come from those guys. It will come from different organisations which might have a different approach. We also need new sources of money. I mean, the, the, Rachel talked about the, 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 the housing association model and the ability to reinvest and, and, and so forth. Actually, we need to get our pension funds, our institutional investors, our long, really long-term approach and a different approach to come in. And then you can start to build something if you're starting <coughs> to plan these areas, if you've got different kind of developers uh, doing stuff, if you've got different investors. You can start to go back to the kind of great estates idea and start to plan and build um, uh, wonderful places. Um, and then the final thing um, I'll touch on is just the product that we build itself. And this can be manifest in lots of different ways. The space standards point is really important. I think the 61 Parker Morris report is utterly fascinating because <coughs> it talks about one in four households having fridges and, and TVs and things like probably not. Yeah, probably TVs and things like that. Really, really fascinating. Looking at it from a human perspective, we try to update that. Um, for, for, for today uh, and we've ended up with larger places to, um, for, for people to live in we need to think about the materials we need to be, think about the landscaping but we also need to think about how we can offer people wider choice so how can we uh, have different governance arrangements in some places and we'll look at a community land trust in East London for example how can you build homes which integrate technology more so as we get an ageing population, people are able to stay in those homes longer? How do we help sustainable communities through what will be fluctuations in prices? And I think New Economics Foundation, Charles, has had a brilliant idea about how you can do that and the flexibility um, um, there. My last word is obviously, whilst we're building all this stuff in a different way, uh, clearly the three million odd homes that London have will, will, will for the most part, remain and will be critically important. And, and thinking about the standard of those homes from their carbon efficiency through to the standards of management if they're privately rented, I think is, 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 is clearly the final challenge we need to meet. Great. Thank you very much. So can we have a round of applause for all five of Lovely. So I'm going to start with a couple of questions and then we will go out to the floor. I suppose the obvious question that I really want to ask is, so, you know, we've talked in this conversation about different models of design. So we've said, well, there are certain things that we know that you know, the average person in general would desire from their 
housing environment. Wayne's given a specific, specific example of growing up in an inspiring housing environment and what it offered him. Charles has connected those design elements to aspects of well-being. And we've also talked a little about how we fund and develop the, the models by which we produce housing through Dickon and Richard's contributions. However, within all of that, the people who are doing the housing still tend to be the planners, the housing associations, um, and I guess the philanthropists. Coming back to this who builds question, which Richard brought up, at the moment, not only is there a tremendous bubbling enthusiasm as manifested in projects such as community <coughs> land trusts um, for more models of, of self-build, so not just individuals maybe finding a bit of money to build themselves a house, but collective self-build, so a new wave of communities or collectives saying, well, we could develop things ourselves if you give us the ability, the framework to do it. Do you feel, panel, that in terms of addressing some of these issues that we do have in the UK and, and particularly in London with housing, there is a meaningful role for end users, inhabitants, to be actively involved in the commissioning, procurement and design of housing? Or is this just a, a passing fad? But I'd be interested to know your, your thoughts on whether you feel there are, there are benefits to that sort of model being supported to slightly flipping the balance of power in how we procure housing? I can answer it, but I mean, there's obviously benefits to it, but it's not going to change, it's not going to radically <coughs> change housing provision. And, and, you know, most people, you know, I suppose the people in this room would all love to have a chance, you know, I'm, look, I'm lucky enough to live in a house that, that we designed, and, and it's obviously a fantastic thing, but it's people in this room and it's not the general public. The general public wants something handed on a plate because they've got busy lives, they've got work to go to, they've got families to look after, uh, and they've got telly to watch. And, you know, and, and, and they've got football to watch and all those kind of things. So, you know, it's, it's fine. We this gets mm. talked about all the time, but it gets talked about in these circles. And, you know, I, I don't know anybody in my family, apart from me and Geraldine, because we got rich, who would have ever... They want, they want something much easier than that, and that's just a decent ha home that they can afford, that they can move into and take the shoes off and put the slippers on. Well, I suppose the, the, the corollary to the <clears> question <throat> and before, is exactly that, that if that's no longer on offer within the existing market system, and it's not for me, for example, just to give one example, is there, do we keep trying to fix that system or does supporting the user-led model offer something different? So I almost never disagree with Wayne, actually. <laughs> <laughs> But everyone I know in my family, and it's not all architects and house builders in my family, I promise, everyone I know would like to have more say over the kind of house that they live in. And you see that. I mean, when they're watching telly, they're watching home improvement shows. Do you know what I mean? Like, people are really interested in where they live. They're interested in the kind of homes that they live in. And I think that if... The thing is, if this is going to play a major role, and I mean like a significant game-changing role in the way that we deliver housing in this country... That's going to require institutional change from the planning system, from ownership models, funders, all of this stuff. That, that there's going to have to be some really radical change. I think the custom build model. Mm -hmm. um, that Do people know the difference the between these because models? Because there are many different sub-genres of the self-build <laughs> model. But custom build, which basically is developer buys large amount of land, sells you serviced plots with lots of options uh, developed by architects, 
Um, Igloo are doing one. Uh, um, Urban Splash are doing another. There, there are a few of the. Um, uh, what's his name? Kevin McLeod has a model as well. There are a few of these that are going around. If that kind of really took off, because it's large scale, it's not just community groups. It doesn't depend on people kind of knowing each other and forming relationships before they get into kind of the the kind of <coughs> neighborhoods. If that really took off, if that was able to kind of properly take off, I think that could be an absolute game changer because I think that's something that, you know, if you look at the number of people who actually want to build their own homes, there's huge. You know, it's huge. And I think that that's because I, it's either self-build, which is the kind of grand designs model, or it's buy something old, knock down all the internal walls and do it up. But those are your basic options if you want to do something different. Can I just, because I'm one minute till Richard has to go, so I quickly want to ask Richard before he walks out. You mentioned community land trusts, so one model where a community would initiate development and actually take the land in trust and then develop on that land and, and thus keep the value. You mentioned uh, the GLA supporting that. Is this something that you're taking seriously as a possible model when you were saying you're exploring these issues of who builds and how we meet our housing targets? Yeah, I, I think it should be taken seriously, but I think it's much harder to achieve in an urban context. Um, and I think with a population like London's, which is uh, uh, arguably more mobile, um, it, uh, uh, and therefore you end up sometimes with more transient communities, this is, this is really, really difficult to uh, achieve. It, it shouldn't mean that we don't explore it, but it's, it's, it's certainly harder to achieve. I think where, you, where it's easiest to achieve, if you like, is, is around an estate regeneration um, program where you have an existing community and can work with them. And I met some people on an estate uh, that's been uh, regenerated by a housing association last week where they've had pattern books and they're able to customise their home. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a good example, but it's also... Um, working with an existing community, whereas one of the challenges we have is that we're building places where it's hard, because of the timescales involved, for people to commit to that place, mm. um, you know, before, before the thing's even got planning. I would actually say there's some structural issues in, um, um, in the way the development industry works and, and the level of involvement of either contractors or housing associations or so on who, who, who either built the product or be the wrong-term custodians of some of the product uh, in the design process and in the planning process um, uh, and that's probably something that needs to be changed Okay, thank you, you need to leave now I'll stay for a little bit longer. Oh, okay. You've been told. <laughs> I know, I know, it was my it was more of my cue well, I, think she meant, I think she meant leave <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to stay for five minutes or leave? <laughs> Anyone else want to well, I, I'd just like to say that it is extraordinary that other parts of the world have such different mm. housing delivery models, which it is apparently impossible to uh, import into this country. In Australia, they don't create houses like we do here. Um, developers create service plots and sell people, um, sell them to people who select houses from catalogues and somebody puts them well, up. The land value is so um, low there. Well, it may be that the land value is so low <laughs> there, but, but it, 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 why can't you do that here? Well, of course, there are always reasons why you can't do that here. I mean, how on earth would you ever manage the planning process in this country if you had a hundred plots and every one of those was a separate planning application? Um, because we've got no mechanism that I know of, 
to provide a collective consent for a load of different houses. So my perception is is that we've got an extremely sophisticated house-building industry in the UK, and everybody's very clear about what their place in that industry is, and nobody is prepared to stray outside the boundaries of what they see as their responsibility. All these co-commissioning ideas, whether they're community land trusts or whether they're just simple co-commissioning, are absolutely routine on the continent, and yet we haven't done a single one in this country, in spite of um, phalanxes of housing officers and politicians being shipped over to the continent to walk around these schemes, and they come back and nothing happens, nothing changes. And so my, my view is, is that until the big institutional players, whether it's the GLA or legal in general or land securities, is prepared to step way outside their comfort zone and say, we're going to make this happen, it's not our job to do this, but we're going to take on this role, it isn't going to happen. But I think that it's a really important point to make in that, you not only have to take the historical view, the long view, to remember, yes, you know, the planning system is a cultural construct. It has constantly changed. It was only invented, really, in 1947. And it is perfectly possible to reinvent, to restructure a planning system. Perhaps slightly harder, but not completely impossible, to restructure models of land ownership, as the community land trusts are potentially doing. And land that is currently in public hands could well continue to be held in community hands rather than necessarily sold to private developers for development. So these, they, if there is genuine will, and I think it's really important that you make that point, Dickon, there is a possibility. <coughs> the one other question, and this will be my last question because I'm aware of time and we'll go out to the floor, it still relates, I suppose, to this issue of the user, the end inhabitant developing. So just thinking through the possible upsides of there being more community-led housing and going back to Charles's initial point about actually things to do with that sense of having some control, some security over your existence and your life, security of tenure, are important to well-being too. And if we are considering this idea that housing is a verb, that it's not just the design of your house, but your ability to live in your house, to stay in your house, to feel it's your home, is also part of good housing. In terms of possible upside of taking community-led development seriously, might one of them be actually a slightly a political shift as well, a, a democratic shift in terms of what people demand from housing? I suppose where I'm going with this is, is going back to John Turner. So he does look at models in other places. He looks at Peru, and he doesn't go for a kind of slum glamorisation, but he looks at this informal housing and says, isn't it interesting, actually, he's really anti-housing standards, mm-hmm. because housing standards, when they're brought in, stop people who are making do in a very creative way, inventing their own home, being able to do that legally, and suddenly they can't afford to live in the same way. And he's very anti authorities imposing housing standards. And he's not the only... I mean, this is a wonderful book, um, Alison Rivette's a great, really readable history of domestic life in, in Britain and housing design over the past century. You know, she points out, historians point out, consistently, elites, whether they're technocratic elites or class elites, have told people how to live, have called things slums and cleared them. So do you think, am I being too utopian by thinking that maybe there is a possibility if we did support more community-led housing to really challenge the way that we 
inhabit cities, to have an upside in... We talk about a democratic deficit at the moment, but there to be upsides in terms of more empowered and challenging communities. I think we're being very naive talking about this because the issue is that progress in life is about having good things available to you so that you can choose what you do, not just spend all your time building a house or whatever. You know, we've, we've got to a situation now where you, know, you, can, you can argue that with things like we're paying farmers too, not enough for milk and stuff like that, but we can go out wherever we are and, and, and find food to cook a, re, a decent meal for ourselves. We can go out and, and buy, go to a restaurant wherever we want and cafes to get everything we want. Competition has, has got to the point where we've got amazing supermarkets. You know, you may hate Tesco, you may like, you may like Lidl, you may, you may hate Asda, you may like Waitrose, but the fact is that we can go out and buy fresh food when we want it to cook food at home. <laughs> we, when it comes to cars... Um, the, the, the industry, I, I think a lot of the cars are boringly designed, but the, tech, the technology, I, the car that I've got was the first Prius to come in the country in 2003. I've done 240,000 miles in it, and it feels like new. Now, anybody my age look back to what cars were like uh, when you, it, after you'd done 100,000. If it went round the clock, you'd be very, very lucky. That would be finished. We're improving everything, but with housing... We're, go we're going back, and, why, and why, why is that? Everything is there for us. You wouldn't choose to build your own car. In the past, you might have done, but the, the fact is that the car manufacturers <coughs> are doing it better than us. Okay. So, can I, uh, but yeah. I need to make one, point, one important point on this. The fact is that we are allowing... This, you know, this country allows house builders to build us worse housing than a lot of us grew up in. And, and, that, and that is because we haven't allowed the competition. We've, we've, we've given them monopolies. We've not allowed them the land. You know, we've not allowed other people to come in the country. And therefore, we're, th we're talking about doing something because the house builders are not doing it for us. Well, that's a backward step. We've got to get to the situation where they are forced to do things for us. And that is the only thing that's going to do is competition okay. and more housing. Okay, so Rachel then Charles. Um, ah, so two things really. One is that we do we do customize cars. We we you know we we do go in you know if you're buying a new car you walk into a showroom and you have a conversation with the person about I want this stereo and I want that's that Bluetooth though. and that kind of thing. No, it's it's but but minor. but customizing housing doesn't have to be building <coughs> you it with your the own kitchen. hands. Of course, in every <laughs> new house builder offers you exactly the same as that. They offer you the, the choice of kitchen. That's not customizing it. But it's but I, I think I think I think it can be more than customizing it. Um, and the other thing is that I'm not necessarily sure that we are building worse housing than we were building before. Like particularly if you look at you know the the increase in building regulations. I'm not going to be massively geeky about this, but houses that are built now are cheaper to heat than houses that were built 30 years ago, and that's important because we're only seeing kind of energy, well, currently we're seeing energy prices dipping, but we will see them go back up again in a very real way, and particularly... You can, you know, make, so an, you can make an old house energy efficient. B&Q will help you do that. It's okay. pretty challenging to make a really old house as energy efficient as what we're building now. So these are clearly two different... Opinions, both valid opinions on this. Although to be able to exercise either of those opinions, you do have to have the the resources to be able to make a choice. Um, going back to yeah. one of Charles's points, and Charles, you wanted to contribute to. I this. just want to make two observations. I mean, firstly, I agree about this monopolistic point. I mean, and, and, and it's not some, it's not actually, it's not surprising. It's not, it's not, it's not sort of just so happens to be monopolistic industry. The point about the land market is it's inherently monopolistic because there's only one piece of land in any given place. So, therefore, the land market is monopolistic. All the problems of the housing industry can, in a way, 
be analysed in, in, on the basis of that simple fact. Everything else flows from it. So, so you cannot hope for the market to deliver uh, uh, outcomes in the way it does in the shopping market or the car yeah. market, which are extremely competitive, extremely competitive markets because the, there is no inherent monopoly, although to some extent these supermarkets compete for sites, so there's a, there's a sort of land market comes in there. So, so I'm basically agreeing with you, but it's not something... You have to... You, you cannot expect the market to somehow There is a solution right. to that, though. In Holland, they would not give 800 homes to one developer on one site. Oh, quite, quite, no, they no, would give eight solutions. developers delivering 100 no, each. Of course oh. there are solutions. Of yeah. course there are solutions. But the point is you, you have to... Of course, there are solutions. You have to use the planning system in that in that way in order to prevent that from happening. So, by proactive use of the planning system, you can deal with it. I just want to come back to your point, mm -hmm. though, about the, your question about 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 communities and so on and so forth. I mean, the, the point about communities. There are two points to make here. It seems to me. Firstly, the the, the, the community the communities themselves just just giving people control over this that or the other doesn't deal with the power relationships between you know, the people who own the land and the people who live there. I mean, the sort of basic, the, that's the basic point. And it, it's an extension of the point I've just been making. If you own land, you've got power because you've got this monopoly power. So, so, so all this stuff about choosing this home or that home or, you know, I want this design or that design is, in a sense, it's nice, but it doesn't deal with that basic yeah. problem. I mean, I just think you have to bear that in mind. Actually, However, community community structures may have a value insofar as they, insofar as they could reduce the tension between landlord and tenant. I mean, and in the sense that, in the sense that one of the problems with with tenancy is to do with maintenance, and who is responsible for maintenance. Uh, and I mean, that's the sort of big problem. Whereas the owner occupier, it's all quite clear cut. Uh, and so it's possible that there are, I think, that there are possibly community structures, but other panelists will know more about this, which reduce, which reduce that tension between landlord and tenants and make it easier to manage, but, but I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I seem to feel on my state that um, we're deliberately kept in a state of chaos so that we're so busy self-organising we won't be trying to sort out the problems. Yeah. We won't actually raise any fundamental questions yeah, about uh, our quite. estate to the council. Anyway, look... We're going to go out to the floor. So the way this is going to work, we'll take two at questions at a time. doesn't have to be a question, but if it's not a question, could it please be a provocative point that will stimulate an interesting response um, rather than just getting something off your chest? So you can combine those two <coughs> things, get something off your chest provocatively, going back to... Dickens theme, but so what we will do, and um, we'll take two questions at a time. Are there two roving mics in the end? Wonderful, but only one you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take two at a time, and um, you can either please quickly say just who you are, you can say anything you like, but that gives us a sense of your context, where you're coming from, and tell us is this a question you're addressing to a particular panel member, or is it an open question? So any questions or provocations from the audience? We've got one lady here, one gentleman there. Let's take those two then. Um, my name's Elsie Wiesu, I'm an architect. Um, I've got two quick questions. Um, the first is about um, public realm um, and talking about um, freeform, I think and um, the work you did there, and the importance of collaborations between artists and other people in making the public realm, the bits in between the buildings. And the second is really, I'm not quite sure how to frame this, but in London, a lot of elderly people own 
um, very expensive properties. And there's, there's a correlation between the elderly and a very, very expensive social care, which is, I think, running at about, the cheapest running about £1,500 a, a week. Um, and through this mechanism, the local authorities are draining the equity from elderly people who've worked all their lives to build this fund, if you like. Um, so isn't, there, isn't it in the interest of these elderly people actually to use the millions that their houses are worth to create their own um, social welfare eld- care for the elderly rather than going into expensive homes and then um, having, having their property effectively confiscated? Okay, so question slash model, good model there, and then second question for you. Hi, I'm, I'm an architect and, um, and a small property developer as well. And my question has been, been a burning question for a long time. You have like, the most um, talented, a lot of talented architects in this country, uh, probably the best in the world, yet uh, none of them have any say in the planning system. Uh, they, there's no, they're not in the planning system at all. They're against the planning system. Uh, why is that the planners are not visually trained? And, and how can they actually make any judgment on these architects' hard work, you know, hard, you know, worked up schemes? And it's madness, actually, that we are having to put up with it for so long. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, who from the panel would like to respond to one or other of these points? Dickens. Um, I'd like to pick up on the question about um, artists and architects collaborating. Um, one of the things I'm involved in, as you said in your introduction, is living architecture. Some of you may have noticed on top of the Queen Elizabeth Hall a boat, a structure, the Room for London. Um, and the, and the, that was uh, designed by an architect called David Cohn. But actually, the inspiration comes from an artist, um, Fiona Banner. And um, they were the, uh, it was an open competition, they were the, almost the only two um, who responded to what we asked for, which was a collaboration between an artist and an architect. And it all stems from her concept. It's all uh, based on the heart of darkness. It's about a story about... Uh, slavery and evil in, in, on the Congo River, told on a boat moored in the Thames estuary. So here, that's the reason why it's a boat, that's why it's on the Thames, and that's why it's the start of a voyage. It opens up a huge kind of discourse and area. And I want to just contrast that with what most people seem to understand by collaboration between artists and architects, which is somewhere during the design process, somebody has this really good idea, why don't we get an artist involved? come in and do a bit of decoration on the outside. That is not collaboration. That's sort of ex- interior, exterior design. Um, it's, uh, and, and I, if those of you who are interested in living architecture, you'll, you'll shortly see, you may be aware of another project in, in Essex, the House for Essex uh, collaboration in Grayson Perry and Fat Architect, exactly the same thing absolutely running right the way through the whole thing like the lettering in a stick of rock is the artist's concept. So I would put a, make a, take the opportunity to make a plea for get artists involved at the beginning, not downstream. 
Can I just um, jump in as well, just on the on artists and, and public realm and, and kind of the work that Freeform, which sadly um, closed in, in 2010 as well. It's a weird, weird mm. year for me. Um, but um, but I, th- I completely agree with you, Dickon, that I think part of one of the problems that we have with the collaboration between artists and architects is the same problem that you have with the collaboration between artists and communities, is that quite often the developer go, oh, I know it would be a really good idea. We'll get some artists in. They'll do this community involvement, and they'll have some community art, which inevitably involves handprints, because that shows ownership, and I just get, yeah. um, But actually, if you do this from the beginning, if you, if you properly kind of integrate artists, it's, it's about creativity. It's about changing the dynamic between the relationship of, of kind of the professionals and, and the community. And I think, just really tiny example, um, Freeform did this amazing project in Dunstable um, on this estate, which was very much like the victim of of kind of postcode prejudice and all this kind of stuff. And they did this thing called Downside Dog Day, which was basically, um, they realized that the kind of number one issue on the estate, none of you will be surprised to hear, was dog fouling. This had been the top issue for you know, many, many years. And so it, rather than kind of go, oh, my God, what are we going to do? They'll, we'll need to have little poo bags decorated by small children, which clearly they also did. They thought, no, look, people on the estate really love their dogs. It's one of the greatest things you can have in life. So they did this massive celebration with get your face painted like your dog and all of this other stuff. And it was sort of, and, and vets were there and microchipping and all of these things. And at the same time, they were sort of saying, where do you walk your dog? And that's where we will put the poo bags decorated by the small children in the primary school. So it's, it's one of those things where if you get the collaboration right, if you get the kind of creative, and it's about the creativity, it's about having a slightly different take on things. And that's what I think is really kind of valuable about, about kind of using art um, as, as part of that. Your point about older people, I, <laughs> this is the biggest challenge facing housing, I think, is how do you deal with an aging population, both in terms of how do you design for an aging population, how do you design for people to kind of downsize or right-size, as I like to think of it, um, in, in a way that suits them and in locations that suit them, because it may not be that you actually want to retire out to the countryside because there's not a lot to do. You know, it may be that you want to live in central London, for example. Um, how you kind of parlay that into how you pay for social care later on. Clearly, this is something that requires, I think, public investment um, alongside personal investment. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to explore kind of different models in terms of how, how we can deal with that. I'll let somebody else take planning. I can say something <laughs> to, to the architect over there. I mean, so you'd like to have influence over... Whereabouts do you live, actually, sorry? That's not too rude a question. So you'd love to have influence over architecture in Clapham, I assume, as well. It would be nice, would it? Would you, would, you, would you want influence over where you live? I don't have. I mean, no, would you want it? I'd let the architect do the job, you know, whoever's been chosen to do the design of the project. But you're, but you're saying, why can't, planners be, why can't planners be creative? That's what you were saying. You, know, you can do something about that. You, know, you, you can uh, stand for election, to, be, to be an elected councillor. You can you, any anybody in here can do that over the age of eighteen, and you can then then you can go on a planning committee and you can change hearts and minds. How how many people in here have stood for election on a planning committee? Nobody. If I was asking that question, if I was in Copenhagen right now or Amsterdam, uh, with a, with a, the average age in this room, I would guess is like thirty, early thirties, mid thirties. You, you would you would have a whole gamut of people who've either done it or planning to do it. Uh, and that's the difference. And you know, we, we, we moan, uh, and we don't do fuck all about it. You know, and, and, and you can, you know, you've got, you can get political. 
you can get political. You can say, you, rather than asking, why don't we, you should just say, I'm going to do it, because you can. There's, there's a system out there. It's not me saying, like one of these oh, Americans saying, we can. You can't, you actually can't go up and do it. Up to a point, up to a point. I mean, I mean... I mean, he goes along to the planning committee and he says, we're not going to have this because it doesn't look very nice. And, and, and the next thing, there's an appeal and the what have you and the what have you. So, I mean, I, I agree with you, broadly speaking, but there are quite a lot of constraints mm. built into the system for local people to exercise, for local people to actually exercise control. For, I mean, I think you're... Sorry, you were going to say something. I was just thought you'd stop. But you finish, then a quick point from Rachel and then we'll take... Uh, I just think, I mean, I, I spoke to the head of planning in one... London Borough, uh, and she said, I can't get any planners who are visually um, sensitive in the way that you want. So I said, why not? He says, because they will become architects. So that's the right, problem. Yeah. There's, got to be, there's got to be, if you like, a merger between the professions to some extent. Well, and and, and uh, Not a merger, but a, a closer alignment. And I think what you should be saying is to the RIBA or the AA or whatever, you know, why aren't you and the RTPI getting together and and, and, and telling the universities to do this, that, and the other. I mean, that's, that seems to me the, what, Definitely. What, a concrete step. Am I the only planner in the house? And, 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 and vice versa. Can I, can I, okay. Sorry, yeah. uh, Just wait for the microphone. In Clapham, uh, it's Wandsworth. There's a DRP panel, design review panel, which is populated by architects and other design experts, if you want to give that title. Um, so there is already, within most planning authorities in London, there is a, a design review panel, panel or some sort of internal review panel that reviews every scheme that's then submitted to the, uh, to the councillors or whoever's reviewing the planning application um, before it's either passed or, or thrown out, so it, it's already in place. I think, I think one's no, it's okay. not. It's not exceptional. Let's not go into this, but... It's, and, and also, heard, sorry, on... We just haven't got much time, so... Just to, to as, a, as a, a fellow architect, I find it quite arrogant when architects think they're the only people with any sort of aesthetic judgment. And the idea that architects should be allowed to just get on with it and push planners to one side so they can, quote, get on with their job, I think is the wrong attitude, and it probably doesn't deliver good housing. Fair point. Yeah. Thank you. Right, sorry, I'm so aware of kind of neglecting you because I'm angry this way. There might be loads of people wanting to ask questions over here. Is, is there somebody in this segment who... Yeah, any other questions from the... OK, so the lady in the blue jumper at the back. Have we got a second one in this round? And the lady with the glasses on her head here. We, I think that hand was first. Uh, um, hello, I'm an architect. I'm from South America in... Uh, all over the places, there's the same problems, actually. And if you want to change something, you have to participate. You can't just be looking through the window. You have to get into it in order to change things. And that's the only way. Yeah. Thank you. And then the second... Okay. Um, um, my question is about... Um, in London, it's a very... Um, so-called overcrowded city and we're trying to provide a lot of housing for people uh, the reason why people are here is because there are lots of jobs um, and then in the rest of the UK we have a lot of vacant housing and also um, far fewer jobs um, why, is, um, why do you think there's a disconnect between uh, both housing and employment okay right anyone from the panel like to pick up on either of those points getting involved or this particular challenge 
I'm happy to take the North-South divide. <laughs> in a word, government policy. That's a hyphenated word in case anybody was curious. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think, I think you raise a really interesting point, and it's something that I, I kind of work with on a daily basis um, because we represent housing associations across the country. Um, the affordability crisis is kind of very hot in London, the southeast, lots of rural areas. There are issues in um, seaside towns, in kind of post-industrial towns, places where the work just, you know, where the primary industries aren't kind of what they used to be. And I think, you know, fundamentally, you, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of rhetoric coming out from the government at the minute around the northern powerhouse and devolution of power, and I think that's a really positive move. I think the kind of um, powers that Manchester are taking, the, the initiative that Manchester has, ta- has taken over the past 20 years to really kind of establish itself as a safe pair of hands to kind of deliver a fundamental review of how we kind of look at economic development, industry, planning, housing, all of these things. Manchester's doing that. London did that. Let's not forget that London, there used to be a deliberate desire to empty out London because it got too hot. They wanted to move people out of London. That seems almost impossible for us to remember now, Um, but as a history person, um, you know, this was a deliberate... all of these things are deliberate decisions that are made by policy, or the deliberate consequences of policy. And just back to the point about, you know, and if you want to change policy, get involved. Vote, mm-hmm. get engaged, be part, you know, be part of the change that, that, that you want to see, not to sound really, sorry. By the way, London isn't, isn't overheated. Well, how can we say that London's overheated? Thir- 13 minutes from the West End is Wembley. You can buy a flat for £165,000 at the moment. You know, you, it's the same price as Manchester. It's not much more than, than, than Manchester. You, Harrow, uh, uh, you know, the Metropolitan Line was... People, it's Harrow part. It's not got a London postcode, but it's 18 minutes. It's, it's Harrow 18 minutes from Baker Street, something like that. You, they're, they're desperate for people to go and live there. It's because you all want to go and live in Hackney. <laughs> make, make a new Hackney. That, you know, that's fine. Harrow is the new Hackney. That, a generation below me has, met, has taken Hackney was a bit of a shithole when I moved to London. It, it's now, it's, it's now, you know, you can, I quite like the word gentrification because there's nice restaurants there now and you can, you know, <laughs> you, you can go, you can go there and, but th- let's move on somewhere else. We've, that's, that's how London's always worked. There are loads of places left. You know, yes, the cent- yes, the West End has gone and Notting Hill and all that and now Kensal Rise has gone, all the yummy mummies have moved in there and, and, and but there's Harlesden, you know, there's still space in Harlesden. There's, there's a whole tract of places, that, you know, London is not overheated. I'm sorry. I, I keep. I go. Run, I, I run a lot, and I just keep seeing places, thinking, why aren't why aren't young creative these these kind of homesteaders? Why aren't they moving here? They're not moving here because there isn't a vintage shop or there isn't a there isn't a coffee house. You go and they will. It's just that this generation in this room. It's an, it's the next generation. It's the 16 year olds that will make that will make a new part of London, and, and that, you know that's just the way it will be. You know, and London can get bigger. You know, it can expand out. There are, there are areas outside of that. Other cities do it. I wouldn't worry myself. I, I, you know, and, and the north will, the north, certain parts of the north will heal itself. Liverpool's a vibrant city at the moment. Manchester feels great. Birmingham, we keep reading about Birmingham. It's not, you know, and then you get towns like Margate because, you know, there are amazing places. Don't just, it's because we've reached a certain age in this room that we're thinking, oh, aren't things bad? You know? <laughs> Does any, I mean, how do other people on the panel feel about this idea that actually maybe we're too hung up on this idea of you know, sustainable mm. communities, you know, that, that people should have... I mean, there's obviously the corollary of that. Is it's not just the young people coming in who should be happy to live anywhere, but what's happening in London at the moment is clearly 
people who have roots, connections, families, all those things that actually probably also save the <coughs> NHS and the police quite a lot of money, are having to move away from mm. those because of lack of affordable housing. I mean, what, do, do we feel that those are significant issues or are there other issues we need to bear in mind in, well, having, in terms um, of about London's specific case? Going back uh, five or ten years and having visited northern towns where... where the housing market had failed um, and the government stepped in with pathfinders, bought up vast tracts of houses and demolished them. I was thinking, I'm jolly glad London's not got that problem. Uh, I'm glad it's got the problem of, of growth and, and congestion. I always think um, that congestion's a really positive thing. You know, It shows that uh, there's a lot of activity, a lot of people want to be there, a lot of people are engaging. Um, and I do remember the relocation of Offices Bureau and the way in which London was being hollowed out by government policy. Um, it, does, it, it, it is something which needs to be managed. I don't believe markets should be left uh, um, untrammeled and, un, and uncoordinated and, and unmanaged. But um, I'm, I think London's a terrific place to be at the moment. But I do think that you know, we need to be very clear when we're having a discussion like this. Is this a metropolitan discussion or is this a national discussion? Mm -hmm. Because... Uh, it's really important that we're clear about that because we don't just uh, casually ignore all the rest of the country. And actually, a lot of these housing issues look completely different if you're outside London and the South East. And we talked earlier about self-building. Actually, thousands of people build their own homes every year. Not many in London, but lots in other places. Probably between ten and 15,000 people build their own homes every year, commissioned, buy a plot of land, commission an architect or a builder, and just get on with it. Um, and actually, um, we, we should encourage that. There should be more of it. Um, but I think we should recognise that's quite difficult to do in London. As a, the point about connections in employment and housing is, I think, really interesting because actually, of course, if you're a planner... You see those as two completely different things, and all our planning legislation, our, our local taxation, the, the way the rates are organised, the way the VAT is organised, is all predicated on keeping those two things apart. Um, and what people want to do is put them back together again. Um, and so you see buildings moving from housing use to residential mm -hmm. use. Planners say, you can't do that unless I've given you permission the government's decided that's unnecessary. I'm rather with the government on this. But you've still got your VAT problems, you've got your rates problems, um, you've got your capital gains problems. And I, I'm in favour of finding ways of loosening these things up. And actually, just, just the last point about that is that only once in, since the war have we really tried relaxing uh, planning controls. And what's there in that place now is Canary Wharf. Um, and actually, there is space in a big, vibrant, dynamic city like London for us to have some much more experimental zones where that community collaboration can be given free reign and where we just back off with our planning and our building regulations and just see what London does if London's left to get on with it. But no one thinks that the Docklands... Docklands, apart from Canary Wharf, the Docklands development stuff was a great success, did they? I mean, that's... Did well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how we you would... We have to be tying up and we... I think most people would say it's 
transformed London's position as a financial centre of the world, well, created well, clearly, vast clearly numbers of jobs, and, okay. and is increasingly generating vast numbers of homes in that area on the back of that economic activity. Well, what kind of homes? But sorry, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> we, we had one. We have time for one more question. Owen says, and there was somebody down here. Was it you? So just this last question. We we missed a hand earlier, and. Um, just panel on, concise responses. They're talking about good design, which is what, why, why we're here. Why do we not have this, these sorts of uh, discussions about crisis and good design with um, other things that are designed and made and produced and consumed, like phones and, and cars and clothes? Why is housing or why is arch- architecture so unique? And we have, these, we have this debate that doesn't exist in other creative industries. Three words, restriction of supply. It really is that simple. It's restriction of supply. Yeah, monopolistic. Monopolistic. Basically, one word, monopolistic. Starvation, <laughs> another word. <laughs> Speaks the um, designer. Okay, yeah, okay. I mean, I, I accept the answer, but... Any yeah, other why, replies why? to that? <laughs> yeah. Why? Because, because it's a, there's, a, there's vested interests out there, and those vest, the, 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 the house builders have massive, massive clout, and, and we're weak, and, and we also there is also the, you know, we're 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 a small land. We we only build what is it, ten percent ish, isn't it, nationally? With ten percent of the, of, the, of our, mm. ten percent of Britain is covered in roads and uh, building stuff. and building stuff, and, and we seem very reticent to go even to eleven percent. If we went to twelve percent. We, we wouldn't be having this debate at all because we would have happy housing that would be affordable. But the only way we're going to do that is to, is for a gov- to have a radical government. You know, we, we all love what the Greens are saying, but they're not going to go to 12%. The, 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 the Tories, absolutely no chance of doing that. The only chance that, that might, might be Labour, but they're, but they're cowards at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and until, until we have a really brave uh, Labour government, probably, who say, right, we are going to build and we're going to lose another 2%. Of, we're, we're going to build council housing. We're, we're going to borrow. What's wrong with borrowing? What's wrong with borrowing to build houses? You know, what's it wrong with increasing national debt to give us the thing that is the most important? And there is to money to borrow from Europe for local authorities who are money willing out there to, to take the risk. Any yeah. other quick response from the panel before we... Um, I, think, I think the money thing is actually, is actually really critical because with the best one in the world, an iPhone 6 is not as expensive as even the cheapest house. You know, so, so there's a lot of money to be lost. There's a lot of risk... There's a lot of capital at risk when you're, when you're designing housing, I think. Um, and then just on the political point, I think um, it's going to take a really brave government. It's going to take, take all of the parties working together, I think, in the next, in the next election. And, and, and the good news is that they're all kind of vying with each other for how many houses they can get built. The Lib Dems are actually the ones saying that they'll build the most. They're saying they'll build 300,000 a year, which is even slightly more than we think we need. So, you know, just putting that one out there. Great. We need to tie up. Summing up words. So, obviously... No shortage of interesting models and disagreement about possible models. But the thing that's really stuck for me from these conversations and from the audience are that there are certain apparently intractable things, whether it's the issue of land that Charles raised or another one of Charles's points, the relationship between the tenant, the person in the space, and the person who owns the land, um, the monopolisation of certain aspects of the industry the planning system in its current state. So these feel like intractable blockages, but none of them are. 
So glad that this gentleman in the audience raised the point, who is an architect, that it's not just architects who actually have aesthetic judgment and beliefs about how the world should be and feel and be shaped. So really, in my summing up, I can only reiterate this lady's point. Of course we should get involved. The way that apparently intractable things change is through the voting public making a fuss about them and asking questions. Richard's gone, but theoretically, well, factually, we can all be involved as citizens here in London and citizens in other parts of the country in contributing to the planning strategies, the housing strategies for our city. Most of us don't realise till it's too late and then we just get really cross about what's happening. But we should be demanding these things. We need to shift some of these blockages, whatever your belief about what good housing actually is or the the upsides, the benefits you hope to gain from it. Um, Community design review panels do exist. I think they're far better than architect ones on the whole because when I work with communities, I find they think about place in a much more progressive way. If you're trying to run a design consultation in a local area and talk about the design as an architect, people will be saying, well, I don't want to talk about this until I understand the economics of it. I I can't tell if it's good or not until I know who's going to be able to let that shop, who's going to live in that house. And our systems can't really cope with that. But if we, you, us, architects and non-professionals, ask those questions, I think that's our best hope, really, isn't it? So thank you all very much. Are there, is there, we go next door now, Owen. Oh, Owen's going to do the next bit. But let's have a final clap for all of your excellent points from the audience and for our excellent panel.